Uh, today, the subject is the Sabbath, and uh, in particular, working on the Sabbath, or Sabbath work. It's always right to do the right type of work on the Sabbath. We think of the Sabbath as rest, but there are times that we need to work. Um, there was a guy that was a baseball player by the name of Yogi Berra, way before most of our time, but maybe you've heard, not yoga, Yogi the Bear, but Yogi Berra. And uh, he was known for these quotes, these statements called yogiisms, where he kind of, I don't know if he did on purpose, because I've been told different things, that he just got them wrong. Uh, I remember, because I, I was a baseball player, the very first time I ever heard one of his was, hey, baseball's 90% half mental. After losing a, a baseball game, he was interviewed, and uh, this New York Yankee, Yogi Berra, said, well, we just made too many wrong mistakes. He said this, he said, uh, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. Well, Yogi, how do I know I might make a wrong mistake if I take the wrong road? Probably many of you have, even in high school recently, read Robert Frost's work, especially The Road Not Taken. He, uh, it's been said that Robert Frost, when he was thinking about this poem, um, was with a friend of his in England. They had been taking lots of walks and talking about deep things, and they were in the woods, and they came to a fork in the road. They didn't know which way to go, and that kind of sparked his mind, and he wrote the poem, The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both. You have to make a choice, is his point. I'm not sure all the, the poem means. I remember sitting in um, high school literature discussing the poem, and so it's still on my mind and thoughts, but I'm not sure exactly what all he meant. But he wrote that poem and then sent it back from America to his friend in England. And his friend in England read the poem, and it said, because he read the poem, The Road Not Taken, he made the decision to join the military in World War I and fight for his country and subsequently two years later die for his country. It, definitely choices matter then. And the choices we make every single day matter maybe more than we know. And the choice we make today about Jesus Christ is the most important decision we'll ever make. And none of us can be indifferent about that choice. We're at a fork in the road. We either have to follow Jesus or not. There is no middle ground. And the reason I bring that up is because of what's written here by Mark in Mark chapter 3 about Jesus. If you have your Bibles in Mark 3, you're in the right place. Would you stand and let's read this together, Mark chapter 3. Again, he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched, and they watched. Uh, these are Pharisees. We know this from uh, this account that's written in Luke, Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Just let that sink in for just a moment. These are religious leaders. Verse 3, and they said, he, this is Jesus, and Jesus said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, 
to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched, out, stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy Jesus. It's the word of God. Would you pray with me and ask God to speak to your heart today? Lord, thank you that you have given us your inerrant words, breathed by your spirit, and then, Lord, recorded by holy men so that we can read about your son Jesus. And not only read, but know who Jesus is. Not only know who Jesus is, but today know we can follow Jesus as Lord and Savior and have a relationship with you, the living God. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the reason I bring up the, the, uh, the, the, the point about the fork in the road is that I was studying Mark's audience or about Mark's audience. So Mark writes this gospel, and you often do this when you come to the Bible. Who is this written to? Who is this written to? In the first century, who's reading this, and why are they reading this, and why does Mark do what he does through the gospel? And it's been thought that Mark's audience, who were Roman and Romanized, were also Hellenized, have Greek thought. As a result of that, just go with me here for a moment. They would have heard about Jesus, and they could have easily put Jesus in the same category as other philosophers and teachers of their day. Great guy, had a lot of wonderful sayings, met a tragic end. But Mark wanted his readers to know Jesus wasn't just some other teacher, philosopher, prophet with a lot of good sayings. He was far more than that. You've got to do something with him. He's a fork in the road. You can't just put him in a category like Plato and Socrates. You have to realize he's not like these other philosophers. He's not like the Roman teachers. So this is who Mark's writing to. And as they think about Jesus, they also have to wonder, why is it that this man who had such good sayings and did such good things were hated by so many people? Hated by the Jews? Maybe we understand that. But why hated by the Romans? Because it would seem if the Romans hated them, the Jews would love him. And if the Jews hated him, the Romans would love him. This is weird. What's going on here? So Mark is wanting us to see that Jesus is not like anyone else, but he also is helping us to understand he's not like anyone else because he has authority that no one else has. 200 verses out of the over 600 verses in the gospel according to Mark have to do with the supernatural works of Jesus Christ. Like he he had power over devils. He could heal diseases. He could raise people from the dead. He's obviously not like any other of your Greek or Roman teachers. So when you come to this text and you read this, you're realizing that Mark is presenting Jesus in such a way that we have to do something with him. The Pharisees thought they could stay silent, but their silence was something. And even today, you might be thinking about Jesus and wondering whether or not to follow him or not, and you're in your mind saying, I will maybe one day, but that indecision is a decision not to follow Jesus Christ. It's a fork in the road. You only have two ways to go. So I want us to kind of look at this text here, and there are two truths uh, that we learn from Jesus that he is not like anyone else, and through this, what can we do to apply this today to our life? Well, number one, we're going to see Jesus does something that no one else does. 
Jesus always, he's not like any other teacher, other philosopher, Jesus always does what is right. Man, I'm going to tell you something. I wish I could say that about myself. But Jesus always did what was right. He always does what is right. And Jesus never, ever did what was wrong. He never does what's wrong. There's two truths here that I want you to write down. Very simple, straightforward message today. It is always, always, always right to do right. It's never wrong to do right, and it's never right to do wrong. Let's take the first one, the, the last one first. It is never right to do wrong. Look in verse 1. Picture yourself walking into a synagogue. If you can, can just kind of think about walking into this synagogue. It's dimly lit. There are lamps that are oil-driven so that you have a little bit of light in there. You have some sunlight coming through some windows that are open so the air can breeze through. And you walk into the synagogue with Jesus, and there's a man with a withered hand. What does he look like? What does he, how do you picture that man? Most likely, he covers it, maybe he keeps it hidden, because the idea is that it's shriveled up. It's not, it's not pretty to look at. It's, it is a word that means juiceless. If you can just picture a raisin. And this is the man. And who, is, who has compassion on this man? Well, it doesn't seem anyone does because the Pharisees who are there who can do nothing for this man will do nothing for this man. Um, and they're watching Jesus to see what Jesus will do because they know Jesus is a man of compassion. And they're wondering, will Jesus work on the Sabbath? They have all types of rules against working on the Sabbath. The Jews were interesting people. Uh, they had been given a law by God, and there were three institutions that were very unique to them. One was the temple. They had a temple that was special in Jerusalem, and I'm sure you're aware of that. Herod had built the temple there, and it was a marvel. Anyone who'd ever seen it marveled at it so that it was written, you've never seen a wonder until you've seen the Jewish temple. They also had the institution of... Um, of diet. They had dietary laws that distinguished what was clean and what was unclean, what they could eat, what they couldn't eat. And they also had something special, and that was how they observed the, the, the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath. Now, lots of religions had temples, lots of religions had dietary laws. Even some religions uh, practiced circumcisions like the Jews. Uh, there were a lot of things that the Jews did that other religions did, did as well. But, but no other religion had an observance of the Sabbath like the Jews. That really set them apart. Uh, th that, that observance of the Sabbath too uh, was, was given to them by Moses in the law, in the Ten Commandments, is the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath holy. But even before that, God had demonstrated why it's important to have a Sabbath. And, and next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about how we should have a Sabbath and have celebrate a Sabbath, a, a day of the week and a time to, to rest and, uh, and how we should come to the Lord's Day and how we should even maybe celebrate Christmas Day, all right? But God set the example in that he created everything in how many days, y'all? Good job. Created everything in six days. Someone asked me the other day, do you believe in seventh-day creation? I was like, not really. What? No, I, he did it in six. And on the seventh day, he did what? Because he was tired, right? He set an example for us. He certainly didn't exert any energy or lose any energy. He did not get tired, but he set an example. So the fourth commandment of the law was already given to us through illustration and what God did at creation, that we ought to have a time of rest 
So the Sabbath is a gift, and it had become anything but a gift to the religious people of Jesus' day. So Jesus comes into the temple. He comes, excuse me, into the synagogue, as was his practice. Notice this again. Again, verse 1, again, he entered the synagogue. Just a reminder that even Jesus, who, <laughs> if anybody didn't need church, yeah, that was his practice. And you see the sad man there, not able to work. Um, rabbis have uh, given us the tradition, and whether it's true or not, that this man had some sort of artistic work. Maybe he was a stonemason, but he was unable to work. And you see the spiteful, right? They are more concerned with their rules than they are the man. And they watch Jesus. They, they watch Jesus. Yogi Bear says, you can observe a lot by watching. Are you, are you there in that scene? Are you watching this? These guys are uptight. They are uptight because they think they're right because they keep certain rules. And Jesus is far more concerned about the man than he is about the rules. And oftentimes Jesus does this. I mean, he, he takes a demoniac in chapter 1. We already studied this. And he, in the synagogue on the Sabbath, delivers him from a devil in Luke chapter 13, Jesus heals a woman who'd been dealing with an issue of blood for 18 years. She spent all of her money on doctors. They couldn't help her, but on the Sabbath, Jesus healed her. On the Sabbath, Jesus helped and healed a man who had, had palsy. And Jesus had raised up a lame man, John 5, on the Sabbath so that he could walk again. What Jesus was doing was showing that it's always right to do right, especially on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were wrong in how they answered Jesus. They were wrong. They were just wrong, and it's never right to do wrong. See how they answered Jesus? Look with me in verse 3. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save life or to kill? He said to them, excuse me, verse 4, and they were, they were silent. What did they say? They said nothing. He's a fork in the road. You've got to say something. You've got to answer that. Isn't it crazy how that we can't answer the simplest questions sometimes? What is a woman? I mean, that's a simple answer, isn't it? Well, it doesn't seem to be in our world. What is marriage? I mean, what is right? What is wrong? Is it right or wrong to do good on the Sabbath? Simple question. Is it right to do wrong on the Sabbath? No. Is it right to do right? Yes. They're silent. They know that if they answer, they are now done. Because if they say, yeah, it's right, what they are acknowledging is that he is someone who can make a statement about the Sabbath. Why? Because he rules the Sabbath and, in fact, is the Lord of the Sabbath. If he heals on the Sabbath, he must be then doing God's work. And if he heals, he's doing work only God can do. What are they acknowledging? You're God. They're silent. This is why they have to, like, okay, we got to figure this out. Man, they got to nuance and spin it, and they got to say later, well, the reason he's able to heal is because he's full of the devil. Can you imagine? And the devil came to kill, still, and destroy, not to heal. So they are silent. There's a fork in the road, and there's no middle ground, and yet, they are silent. But their silence is loud. It is loud. Because their silence is a statement. They are rejecting Christ. You cannot 
stay indifferent when it comes to Christ. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem right now. Jesus Christ did his great work on the third day. On, on the first day of the week, he came out of the grave. And he did that work to show us that we can't be indifferent about Jesus because he defeated death. Do you know anybody else that's defeated death? You know anybody that's beat death? Like you see somebody yet seen in several years because they died, and you're like, what happened? Oh, I, I came back to life. Jesus did. You know anybody else like that? No. As a result, then today you can't be indifferent about Jesus. You, you, you have to make a decision, and I have to make a decision. Will we follow Jesus Christ? He's more than a baby in a manger. He's the Lord God Almighty. So the Pharisees were only, they said they were wrong in how they felt. How did they feel? Look at the text. They were angry. Luke, in his account, because he gives us uh, a little bit of this too, Luke says they were furious. The King James Version says they were filled with madness. The idea is they were they were acting like fools. They were acting the fool. That's how it would be written. They were rejecting what is right for what was wrong, and that is foolish. It's always foolish to reject what's right and embrace what's wrong. Romans 1 tells us foolish people reject what they know is right to embrace what they know is wrong. So they are feeling full of fury. Why? Because they are wrong. And they didn't understand. It wasn't just a withered hand that needed to be healed. It was their withered hearts that God wanted to heal. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah said, God has promised, I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah. I will bring them out of the land of Egypt. I will restore what they have broken. This is the covenant that I will make with Israel. In those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The new covenant was that God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. Exchange for your withered, hard heart. He's the Lord who can restore what is lifeless, including lifeless hearts. In fact, today, just, just be encouraged because the God who is the God of life, can restore life to whatever is dead in you. The Jesus who came out of the grave can resurrect what is dead in your life and give what is lifeless new life. Their God was their religion. And because their God was their religion, these Pharisees were actually breaking the first commandment. They were missing a relationship to Jesus Christ. They were unwilling to submit to Jesus. Their way of life was, was their choice over the way, the truth, and the life. They, wanted, they didn't want to be in control, and they didn't want Jesus to control them. So here at the Fork in the Road, they could have made a decision, like we all can, to submit to Jesus Christ, but the reality is we'd rather control our own destiny. Religion gives us a false sense of control. I can check off, I've done this, I've done that, I've done that. Look what I've done, God. Right in Matthew 7, where the religious people are standing before Jesus, look what we've done. Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. 
The Pharisees were wrong in how they felt. Look at this. They were wrong in what they did. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Y'all, this is, this is unbelievable. This is like... Um, this is like Republicans and Democrats getting together and doing something. It, could you imagine that? But no, no, not just doing something, um, doing something right. But here, here, here are two groups who really don't like each other at all and have different interests altogether, and yet they're colluding to do something wrong. It would be unthinkable. I mean, Mark's audience were reading this going, they did what? They got together how? This Jesus must not be an ordinary teacher. If his life can bring such enemies together in collusion. The Herodians uh, were a group of people who were a political sect that followed after Herod the Great who was dead now. So most likely they were supporting Herod Antipas who had been set up as one of the sons to rule a part of Israel. There, the Herods were not unified with the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted to see a unified Israel under a theocracy of God and beneath their Judaistic rules. The Herods wanted to please Rome. As long as they pleased Rome, they had their power. Their interests were not aligned. And yet, isn't it interesting how when enemies come together, they usually come together over something like this, hatred. Mark chapter 2, Jesus said the bridegroom is going to be taken away from them. Jesus knew this was going to happen, that there would be enemies from all sides. And Mark chapter 8, Jesus said to the disciples, I want to warn you about the use of the Pharisees and of Herod. Jesus knew that there would be common enemies and they would take his life. But that's why he came. He came to die. That's why at Christmas, when you think about the Magi coming to the manger scene and offering gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that sounds so wonderful, except myrrh is a spice given for funerals. Why would you already be planning the funeral of a baby? Well, our Lord came to die. When people reject God, have you noticed this? They often marry their religion with their sin. Here you have religious people who are willing to go and meet with the enemies of the state, if you will, because they love their religion more than they loved their Lord. And oftentimes, when people love sin, they will try to marry a religion to their sin. People are not always, always rejecting of religion, but they are always, always willing and in the flesh wanting to accommodate their sin within the religion. We see this all around us. It has the idea sometimes of how I can blend. I, I want to be, I don't, I don't want to be, not be religious, but I do want to blend. But you can't come to church and pretend outside of the church to not follow Christ if you are truly a follower because everyone Jesus calls, he calls public to be salt, to be light, to be out there in public. Have you ever seen these, of course you have, chameleons? If you just move down here from up north, they're not baby alligators. They run all over your yard and they're in the green St. Augustine grass and they turn green and they jump on your brown palm tree and they turn brown. That's an amazing, amazing ability God put in those lizards, isn't it? As amazing as that is in lizards, it is terrible in Christians. God didn't call you to blend in. And he also didn't call us to bend in. 
to our sin. Religious people love to accommodate not only uh, the culture they live in, but also the sin that they love. These, these, these guys are no different. They're wrong. And it's never right to, to do wrong. Second point, it's never wrong to do right. And so let's look at Jesus, because he is always going to do what is right. Look in verse 3. Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Love that. I mean, because the man doesn't ask to come. He doesn't ask to be healed, but Jesus takes the initiative. He sees the man. He knows the man's there. He already knew he needed to be healed. So he says, come on. Because this guy's not going to get healed unless Jesus tells him to come. In the same way, we were saved. Think about when you were saved. You were called. Because you were called, you could come. And because you came, you were saved. That's the way it works. We come without conditions, without preparations. I mean, this guy didn't even have to put essential oils on his hand. Jesus healed him. Come to Christ. He will heal. He will make right. He will make alive. He can even take dead hearts and make them alive. Notice that he comes too, this, this man comes, in spite of what everyone else around him is thinking. He couldn't care less what people were thinking. The religious leaders are looking to accuse Jesus. They can't believe that he might actually work on the Sabbath. And this guy's like, I couldn't care less. He's going to heal me. I don't care what you think. Jesus was right in what he asked. What did he ask? Look in verse 4. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, right? What is really lawful? That's what Jesus is asking. I mean, in Deuteronomy 6, you have what is known as Shema here, O Israel. And what are the Israelites taught and told? You teach your children this, to love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what you teach your children. You teach them when they're rising up, when they're laying down. Teach them that. And then here is what is next. And for you adults, you, you adults here, you should keep diligently the commandments of the Lord, which he's commanding you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. You know what the law of the Lord is? Do right. Do what is good. Jesus is asking the question, they should have, I mean, these guys have been to Sunday school for crying out loud. They should have got the answer right away. The law is to do right and do good. To save a life or to kill it. Matthew gives a little more context. Matthew writes about this account as well. Jesus, after he said this, according to Matthew, looked at them and said, which one of you has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and pull it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? Material is not more important than the soul. When material is more important than the soul, people become a commodity. They're exploited. It's the reason we go to war sometimes because there are men and women who care more about the material than they do about the soul. And we go to war for wrong reasons. It's why we exploit people in our world. It's why people are used and abused in our world because when the material, what I want is more important than someone's soul or what someone wants is more important than their soul then people get, they get used. It's why the abortion doctor is willing to take the life of a pre-born, innocent human being because the material is more important to him, to her, than the soul. But you know what? It's true also of us that if we're not careful, the material can take precedent over what really matters. Matter over what really matters. It is sometimes why families fall apart Drift apart, grow apart. Because 
So much of our world is about getting and attaining and getting to the next level, getting the next promotion, going to that next place, that next destination, that after a while you turn around and look and you have grown apart as a family because matter has gotten in the way of what really matters. That's why marriages disintegrate. Oftentimes is we get busy, we get going on and on with things, including money. That's why the gospel sometimes is second dairy in our lives because we are active and aggressive and, and, and saving and having something for the future and making sure we have all of our, meet, our needs met, but, but, but not caring about what's first. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Is that what Jesus said? I, I don't know how many people tithe in our church, and I don't know what the percentage is, but it's lower than I think it is. I'm always an optimist, and I always think it's a lot higher than it is. And I just think, well, what if everyone in our church really gave contributed to the gospel and to the kingdom. Could you imagine? Just think that for a moment. And isn't it right to do what is right? And is it ever right to do wrong? And just to hoard everything to myself? Everything that God has entrusted me with? What am I going to give? Hey, you got to think that out. You got to work that out, man. You got you to look at your spouse and your family and your budget, and you got to work out what it is to give. And if you're a teenager and you're working, you got to go, Lord, what is it that you want me to give? You got to work that out because it is never right to do wrong, and wrong is holding it all to myself. These guys were more concerned about the material than the soul. Jesus said, what's more important? You mean you you care more about a sheep than you do a soul. Jesus was right in how he felt. Look at verse 5, and he looked around them with anger and grieved. He grieved. Can can, Can you have two emotions at once? Is that possible? Of course. You ever had mixed emotions? Of course you have. I mean, you have mixed emotions. You, you're sad your team lost, but you're glad that the team you hate won't also lost. I mean, you know, you're sad and glad. You have mixed emotions. You, you've had conflicting emotions. You, you don't know why. Sometimes you have corresponding emotions. Jesus does here. He's both angry and he's grieved, just like a parent who is grieved over the actions of their child when they rebel but are also angry at the sin. It is wrong to discipline in anger, but it is always the case when you discipline that you're angry at the sin because you know what the sin does. And you're grieved over the fact that you have to discipline, and you're grieved over the fact that your child has rebelled. And however you choose this discipline in that moment, there's no doubt, whatever you choose to do as a loving parent, if you do it godly and graciously, you are angry and grieved. Here's Jesus. And why is he angry and grieved? Look at this. Hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus said, you know, the disciples had a hard heart. You can have a hard heart. You don't have to be a Pharisee with a list of rules, a legalist, with all types of uprightness where you squeak when you walk because you are so right and everyone else is so wrong. You can be a disciple and have a hardened heart. Jesus said this. As the disciples were worried or doubting whether or not they're going to have anything to eat, do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Jesus is asking them, You're doubting me, and it's because your hearts are growing hard. They're being calloused. When Jesus looked at these, these Pharisees, he was grieved because their hearts were becoming like calcified, is, is the word. It's easy to allow our hearts to become calcified or hardened. 
One of the ways we do that is that we hear the Word of God and we don't heed it. And you can hear the Word of God over and over and over again to the point that you don't heed it. And after a while, you just get hard of hearing because you're hard-hearted. You're not moved by the Word of God anymore. I mean, there are those who hear the Word of God and hate it. This is why some people go under judgment. If you were to look at Israel right now and wonder, why is it that Israel seems to be always being attacked? They're being attacked by terrorists. They're being attacked by governments. Now they're being attacked even on American soil, but people with different political agendas. Isn't it amazing to watch how some people have totally different agendas but are coming together in collusion because they have a common enemy? I was listening to a podcast from uh, Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, No Insanity Required, and, and they were talking about how weird it is that you have LGBTQ people in America converting to Islam. Think about that just for a moment. How would that work in an Arab country? How is it that you would take this intersection and because you want to be so, so wild and so rejecting of God, you want to choose another intersection that makes no sense? By the way, that's what CRT is. You know that, right? And why the devil was so smart in the way he's introduced CRT to our nation and into our schools because everyone's a victim. And the more victimized you are, the more heroic you are. This is the Pharisees and the Herodians and hard hearts will do crazy things. And why right now Israel is under the judgment of God? Why, why is Israel under the judgment of God? They're God's people. Listen to Romans chapter 11. What then? Israel failed to obtain what is seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see. Romans 11. Lest you become wise in your own sight, do not want you to be aware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 3. Their minds or their hearts have been hardened to this day. Christ has not taken the veil away. Jesus said this, therefore, they could not believe for God has said in Isaiah, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see and understand and their hearts would turn and I would heal them. Their hearts are hard. They will not see. Think about when Jesus came at the incarnation. The innkeeper was hardened and he was industrious and he cared more about money. The religious leaders were indolent. They should have came and worshipped at the feet of Jesus. The political leaders were indifferent until they heard they might be threatened. Hard hearts reject Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is they reject the lordship of Jesus Christ, are unwilling to follow Jesus Christ as Lord, and then our hearts can be calcified. So, so how do our hearts get hardened? How do our hearts get hard? Hearing the Word of God over and over again like these guys and not listening and not heeding and not doing, learning and not obeying. Underpentant sin leads to hard hearts. Hurts can lead to hard hearts. Hebrews 12 says, be careful if you've been hurt because that root of bitterness can enter you and harden your heart if you're unwilling to forgive. But I think the worst and most dangerous place to be is where these Pharisees are. They are full of spiritual pride. They're right. You can't teach them anything. Well, they wouldn't learn anything. They know it all. Here is Jesus who teaches like no one else, and they couldn't care less what he has to say. All they care about is accusing him of doing wrong. They're unteachable. They're 
They're not supple. The soil of their heart is hard, and they reject Christ. Obadiah the prophet said, pride has caused your heart to be hard. That's them, and it could be us. But praise be to God that he does change hard hearts, and he can resurrect dead people to life. And we all, according to Ephesians 1, were once dead in our trespasses and in sin, hopeless of coming to Christ, hardened, and yet God raised us by his mercy. So, it's always right to do right, isn't it? It's never right to do wrong. So, it's always right to reach out your hand to Jesus. Here's a man with a withered hand. He came to church like every other day, just thought it was going to be another day where he had to kind of keep to himself. Nothing new was going to happen. But Jesus came in and made all the difference. Jesus said, come here. He came. Again, again, just put yourself in that place. There are people looking, watching. Is he going to go? Is he going to defy the religious leaders? Is he going to break the rules? Is he going to go to this Jesus? Yes. He gets up and he couldn't care less what anyone else around him thinks. Praise be to God. That's how God has called us all. He's called us out of our secrecy and into the public and into the light where we say, yes, King Jesus, I'm here and I'm not ashamed. And because of that, he's restored. Like his hand is completely restored. Could you imagine the joy in that brother? Imagine the despair he had when he came into the synagogue and the joy that he felt when he left. You might have come here today and and your heart might actually feel a little bit like a wrung out orange. And you don't even know why. You, You might be able to pinpoint it. You might even be able to look back at why you have gotten to the place you're at. It could be unrepentant sin. It could be you're just walking at a guilty distance from God. You're living in immorality. Or it might be just this. Your, your Bible is just dusty. These two are married and never will part. Dust on your Bible and rust in your heart. Have you gotten away from your time in prayer? Your time on your knees? Time in relationship with God? You're checking the boxes. You're keeping the rules, man. But your relationship with the Lord is cold. And you know what? It it might be because of some broken relationships, your heart is hard. But you know what God does to hard hearts and for hard hearts? He says, come here. And he restores withered hearts. It is never wrong to reach out your hand to Jesus. If you're here today going, I need to reach my hand out to Jesus. I just need to come to Jesus and say, thank you. To do what David did, would you restore in me a new heart? Last It is never wrong to reach out your hand to someone who's in need. What Jesus did was right. What the Pharisees did was wrong. And it is never right to do wrong. It is always right to do what Jesus did. It's it's to find that person, and even on the Lord's day, and say, how do I help someone who's in need? In need of Christ, in need of love, in need of kindness, in need of prayer, in in need of tires for their car. Shoes for their kids' feet. How can I meet a need? How can I care for someone who is broken, who is struggling, who's going through a dark, deep valley? How can I just show up for them? How can I be there for them? It is never wrong to reach out your hand to someone who's hurting and in need. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us this text. You have 
really laid on our hearts today how important it is to show love and compassion and kindness. Like Elijah, you tell us to not halt between two opinions. Jesus, Lord, you came to show us we have to make a decision and you have called us out and you've called us in to serve with you. And God, may we do that. Thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.